Our reading for this afternoon is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. And we'll be reading from Romans chapter 3, the verses 9 to 26. So this is taken in connection with the topic that we'll be covering this afternoon from Lord's Day 2 regarding the law of God and Christ's summary of the law. Romans 3, the verses 9 to 26. So, up to this point, the the Apostle Paul has been talking about the Jews who have the law and the uh, benefit of that law. But, he writes here in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Word of God. In response, let's sing together now from Psalm 4, the verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord's Day that we'll be reading today as we work our way through the Heidelberg Catechism is Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2. And you'll be able to find that on page 518 of your Book of Praise. (laughs) 
From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when was the last time that you had an honest self-examination? When was the last time that you sat down and took a look at yourself seriously and considered who you were, what you were capable of, and why you do and don't do certain things? There are many people in this world whose only principle is that they go by, why, they go by what society thinks is good. They do what the crowd teaches them is okay to do, and they don't do what the crowd teaches them is not okay. The secular philosopher Nietzsche summed this idea up under the statement, morality is cowardice. Basically, you don't do what you might want to do, not because you're a moral person, but because you're afraid of what might happen to you if you don't. And this is something that we've already been conditioned in right from the time that we were a small child. If you're in the nursery and you try to take toys away from other kids, those kids won't want to play with you. Plain and simple. You'll feel the consequences of doing that. So you're socialized and you learn to get along with other kids because you don't like the consequences. You've been trained to be afraid of the social cost, starting with small things, and that's ingrained in you as you grow older. You don't do things which are wrong, not because, in this philosophy, not because you're interested in doing what is right, but because it's easier for you to keep doing what you are doing right now. The way that this presents in some people is that they take what's immoral to the very edge of what they can get away with without serious consequences. Take pornography, for example. Many people first get into it because they are pushing the boundaries of their sexuality. If someone is pushing boundaries, they're not pure because they want to be pure and glorify God with their bodies. They're pure because they haven't had the opportunity to act out without consequence. And they're also afraid what will happen once they do act out on their desires. And then, suddenly they run across a website. They're curious and want to explore more, but they realize what they're doing is wrong. That being said, that man or woman weighs the costs of getting caught against the costs of acting out, of transgressing the law of God, and figures, as long as no one finds out, 
it'll be okay. It's just this once. I can indulge. What they haven't realized is that they've taken the first step down a particular path. Their morality is no longer based on doing good or being good. Their morality has suddenly switched to being as bad as you can be without getting caught. Or at least, without getting into serious trouble. Now, for you, your particular sin might not be sexual in nature. Maybe you're more inclined towards anger or bitterness. Maybe you've found that someone will back off if you lose your temper a tiny bit. So it's convenient for you to push the edges of your boundaries there, going beyond what's right, but not so much that your temper will bring you consequences. Maybe you're disobedient or disrespectful, as much as you can get away with, to parents or to those in authority over you. And in response, they might not ask as much of your time as you would like, to, they might not ask more of your time than you would like to give up. Maybe you waste time at work or at school, just enough to satisfy yourself, but not so much that the boss notices and your performance suffers or that the teacher notices and, and your grades take a dive. Maybe you drink more than you should, but as long as it's in hiding, you can get away with it. Maybe you like to smoke a joint or two, but as long as it's with people who are okay with it, you're in the clear. Maybe you like to gossip, but as long as you can hide it under, it's only the truth. Or, I just wanted as many people as possible praying for this person. You'll push as far as you can without feeling the sting of consequence. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. Each of us has something that we struggle with in our lives. When we overcome one thing, we realize that there's yet another. And when we overcome that, we discover yet another. Take a moment now to look on your life, just a few seconds, and see if there's anything that stands out to you where you push the boundaries even a little bit. Take a moment. Is your morality, what you see as right or wrong, is your morality the morality of Nietzsche? Is your morality in this area of life, at the heart of it, just cowardice? What drives you to be obedient? Today, beloved, I want you to consider what the catechism has to say and honestly examine yourself in light of it. And I want you to recognize our catechism's two conclusions that come from such a look into your life. A Christian's honest self-examination recognizes two realities. First of all, misery being an undeniable fact. And secondly, the need for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now you may have found it interesting to note that the Lord's Day 2 of the High Level Catechism doesn't question whether or not you're miserable. It assumes the fact. It assumes that you're miserable. And our passage today presents this in a very vivid way. So let's take a look at that. <clears throat> 
we read that both Jews and Greeks alike, Greeks being non-Jews in, in this particular setting, are all under sin. We read in verse 10 and following, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Strong words. It seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? And yet we find this very same idea, this very same basic concept in our Lord's Day today. From where do you know your sins and misery? Not, do you have sins and misery? Not, have you felt miserable? No, it's, from where do you know your sins and misery? You are in a miserable state. You find yourself naturally in the same position as every single other human being on the planet. In fallenness, in misery, in chaos, and in darkness. It might present itself more vividly in some people than in others, but this is where every person finds themselves in their natural state. One Lutheran pastor wrote last year, reflecting on Nietzsche's words, he said, the fact is we like it when people fall, especially our enemies, especially the rich and famous. I knew there was something wrong with that guy. We might not have the money and fame, but at least we got our morality, right? So we puff up our chests around the water cooler with some good jokes. We pass the memes, pretend to be shocked, throw tomatoes, thump our chests. We throw a party when the big guys fall, but we probably feel pretty good when the little big guy in our community or in our church falls too. I would never do that, we mutter. Yes, you would. You just don't have the guts, Nietzsche would retort. Of course, he uses this truth to make a case for the absurdity of good and evil, but his observation has merit. Jesus would probably agree as he obliterates anyone who considers himself righteous in his sermons on the mount and on the plains. Yes, unlike this pastor notes, this is an especially clear reality in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 21. If you take a moment to just glance through the Sermon on the Mount from start to finish, and you can pick out particular passages that express this so vividly. Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman for lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says it's possible to even be false in the good things that you do. Matthew 6 verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street that they may be seen by men. I assure you, they've had their reward. Matthew 6, verse 16, When you fast, 
Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men who are fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus had a habit of being able to point into the deepest reaches of someone's heart and say whether for what they were doing was inclined towards good or whether they were doing was inclined towards bad, there. You are imperfect, there. You fail the law, there. And you find your miserable state, there. And this strongest of ideas is reflected in the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. Boys and girls, do you know why Jesus gave his summary of the law? There were different groups of people who are coming to him. And they had an argument about what commandment was more important. There were some who were focused on obeying at all costs. There were others who focused more on love or other things and saw some of the commandments as less important because of that. Now, the one who came to him and asked him was one of the strict ones. He was a Pharisee. And he wanted to know, what is the greatest commandment? Which is the most important? Is Jesus going to help one side or is he going to help the other in their argument? Is he going to go with those people who are really strict? Or with those people who are going to let everything go? You can find people like that today in the world, can't you? Those who are really strict and those who aren't strict at all. Just think of your friends at school. There are those who think it's all about rules and if you follow the rules you'll turn out okay. Or those who focus on love and grace so much that they don't want to speak about it at all. But what does Jesus say to this person? He says, you don't understand the law at all. You're making some commandments more important or less important because you think that obeying the commands is going to save you. You think that doing exactly what God says to the very letter is going to make you right with God. And if you slip up, as long as you care enough, as long as you meant well, and you take the proper steps, it'll be okay. But Jesus says, you don't understand at all. The law doesn't fix you. The law doesn't save you. The law condemns you. The law gets you into trouble. He says, even if you obey the law on the outside, God knows your heart. God knows if you're just being obedient because you'll, you're scared you'll be caught. Or if you're obedient because you love Him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love Him, you will keep His commandments. Love for Him expresses itself in keeping His commandments and keeping it perfectly. 
If you love your neighbor, you'll look out for them in every possible way and not want to sin against her or to hurt him, even if that person is the one you dislike the most in this world. Ask yourself that for a moment. That person that I dislike the most in this world. That person that I really can't get along with. Do I truly, deeply love that person? Not in the sense of romantic love, but a genuine caring love. Do I really, truly, deeply love that person? That is what makes love for God the greatest commandment. And love for your neighbor as something that comes out of that love for God. Because if that is the focus, then you will obey all of the commands. If we look at the law piece by piece, breaking it up into chunks and putting one as more important than another, we don't do so badly in light of that, do we? But if we look at the law in its demanding unity, in the way that Jesus Christ described it, that perfect depth of love, our brokenness, our fallenness, and our misery becomes an undeniable fact. Our catechism is trying to make us come to terms with that, as is the Apostle Paul. It's trying to bring us to a place where we accept that as something real. If we come to terms with that part of our soul, as it were, in its natural state, being grounded in hell, that our sinful nature makes us capable of immense evil, we'll be able to begin to look beyond ourselves, we'll be able to begin to look beyond our own righteousness. One prominent psychologist noted that soldiers who develop post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, frequently develop it not because of something they saw, but because of something they did. Now, this isn't always the case, but it happens often enough to be noticeable. Interesting, isn't it? Many people who commit atrocities, who aid in war crimes, who helped in death camps, would never have dreamed that they were capable of doing such a thing. And then they do it. And they're horrified to have found themselves capable of it. And that single realization destroys them. That single piece of human nature which allowed them to do it is what dwells in every natural man. The soul of every single human being on the planet. Do you find this surprising? What does the catechism say to that? The world is shocked by it, but the catechism says, you find this surprising? I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Now this is not, of course, to say that I will hate God and my neighbor all the time, but that I am inclined to do so. And we so often act on it too. That is why the Spirit of Christ teaches us in 1 John 1, verse 8 and 10, 
If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Brothers and sisters, each of us needs to come to the realization and embrace the fact that in our fallen state, we are capable of the most horrible things. And as proof of that, we act out the seeds of it in our day-to-day lives, in the smallest of ways already now. Lift society's barriers like a soldier in a wartime situation where people around us are committing atrocities and the enemy has done horrible things to our side, and then what are we capable of? Will we still perfectly fulfill God's law to live a life of perfect love? Or would we find that of ourselves we're like every single other human being on earth? You see, many people see Jesus' law of love as a softening of God's commands. They see it as a way in which we can become more tolerant of those who are around us, more accepting, embrace everybody, even those who are living in unrepentant sin. But if we truly look at this, then we can see that Jesus is not doing this Pharisee a kindness in Matthew 22 by summarizing the law in this way. Instead, he's dealing a devastating blow to his righteousness and the righteousness of every single individual who's there listening to him that day and to the righteousness of each and every single one of us here today. And Paul recognizes this. That's why he says in verse 19 of our passage, Romans 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable. That the whole world may become guilty before God. You won't recognize this if you haven't yet examined yourself and discovered your ability to do great evil. You won't see how you're already nurturing those seeds of evil within you that could spring up into poisonous vines of evil either. You won't see it if you keep yourself in a bubble where you're a pretty good person and refuse to hold yourself up to that mirror that is God's law and the terrifying, immovable standard that is Jesus' absolute command of total and untainted love. Do you see yourself as you are in your natural state? Every mouth stopped, all the world held accountable. Do you see the pro- having embraced your misery as an undeniable fact? Do you see the profound truth that Paul's giving here? The law of God, the law of love, all of that does make us, does no more than to make us sure that your mouth will be stopped. It cannot be something that you can force, that you can force yourself to hold perfectly as much as you try to make yourself the dictator of your own soul. But when you recognize your sinful nature and you hold yourself up, you hold its darkness up to the light of God's word, something marvelous happens you begin to see where you're deceiving yourself. You begin to see where you've been following out of fear and not out of love. Your questions no longer become, how much can I get away with? 
and how far is too far. But how have I missed this attitude in my life? How long have I been skirting the edge of sin with my only barrier being, being afraid of what will happen? Your mouth will be stopped. You'll be held guilty before God and it will be a good thing. But how can it be a good thing, you might ask? You just took the law, the law of love, and made it terrifying. You just stripped it of anything good that I feel about me being moral or righteous and took that away. How can that be good? It is good because then we can come before God with a realization, Lord, my mouth is stopped. I have no excuses. I have only willful blindness. I bring you nothing but my sin. Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you, Lord. I so desperately need you. And I can't do it without you. This is the position that Jesus wants to bring us to. He wants a burden to drive us to our knees in prayer. To weigh us down until we are bowed at the foot of the cross. Then we'll be looking beyond ourselves. We'll be looking beyond our own attempts, our trying to look pretty good in light of the law, and we'll seek a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. So where does that leave us in relation to the law? The law, which before Christ was a threat to us and exposed our sin. The law was, before Christ, a threat to us and exposed our sin. It exposed the fact that we are deserving of death. And it's concerning this aspect of the law that we find the former slave trader, John Bunyan, writing, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law commanded, but we are dead in our sin. We could not measure up. The law says do, and we could not do. How could we possibly measure up to what God required? But in answer to this question, the gospel brings us beyond the law. Look to verse 21 of our passage. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith is for all who believe, for there is not, no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in verse 24, all have been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forward as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God passed over sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at his, this present time His righteousness, that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That He might be both just carrying it out, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What do we see here? Because of Christ, God can still be just. He still punishes mankind for the sins which have been com committed. 
He punishes sin through the person of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is a chance to accept personal responsibility for all we do. A chance to begin to make real amends. And we do so knowing that what we have done has very real consequences. And knowing that our God is good, our God is faithful, our God is just. And we're not going to get off scot-free for that. But, we know that we won't be destroyed by them either. We won't get off scot-free because our older brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, has paid the price for them. We don't get off scot-free because we truly do begin to work to the best of our ability above and beyond Christ's payment for our sin, not working because we need to earn salvation. And that's the important part to take hold of. Not because we need to earn salvation. Christ has already paid for everything. But working out of a response of love because we deeply love God. And a response of love for our neighbor. Working to alleviate their suffering to the best of our ability and to direct them to Christ in everything and our own hearts to Christ in everything because that's what Christ wanted and we love Christ. And in a flash, in an instant, that terrible law of love is changed into a beautiful thing. Because in Christ, it no longer is a standard that we can never measure up to. But it's a response to what has been done for us. And that's what it should be. It is, first of all, a declaration of what Jesus has done for us. In that moment, in that instant, that is the moment in which the law bids us fly and gives us wings. It's absolutely amazing. Nothing we have done or we could have done could have caused us to deserve this. And yet God grants it to us as a free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. As we see in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. This is the glorious, glorious conclusion to your discovery of yourself in the view of the eyes of God. You no longer fear sin. You, sorry, you do fear sin. You no longer fear God. You no longer fear God. Looking at your sin, you strive to put it away. Not because you're afraid of the consequences, but you strive to put it away because God is good. God is good, and He doesn't deserve our sin. He doesn't deserve your sin. He doesn't deserve my sin. But you don't just remain there. You begin a journey of being rewired by finding your identity in Christ, creating new pathways in your mind and in your life. Not just being content to receive that gift and then bury it in the ground, doing nothing with it, but making it multiply. Being able to make it multiply for your benefit and the benefit of those who are around you. And what this looks like? Well, the remainder of the catechism is devoted to that. If you were left to yourself, this would feel like an overwhelming burden. And it would be more than you could handle. But that's the final gift of grace that we're given. Through Jesus Christ, you have a spirit who's given you. A spirit who will guide you in this journey of transformation. 
This journey of recognizing your deepest darkness and where that could leave, your desperate need, and then fleeing to Christ to find your everything in Him. So begin today. Having read this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 2, begin today. Begin examining yourself and every dark corner of your life and come to know your misery. Come to marvel at the grace that's shown to you. God's riches of grace at Christ's expense and respond by fleeing to Christ. By fleeing to Christ whom you so dearly love. Amen.